When I was young and fit, which was last millennium, I uh, was uh, walking through the Victorian Alps for a week's hike, and the end of that climbed Mount Bogong, the tallest mountain in Victoria. And uh, though I was, you know, I was young and fit, but uh, you get to the top and you enjoy a sort of panoramic view. And in a way, uh, that's where we arrive in Romans 8. There is, of course, still more eight more chapters of Romans, so it's not actually, in one sense, quite the end or the climax. Uh, it's climactic in what it says, but there is actually more by way of uh, elaboration and application in the chapters that follow. But nonetheless, we arrive at this uh, glorious vista, uh, the climax of uh, eight chapters of argument to help us understand the gospel of Jesus. But there is a problem that Paul is addressing in this final section, uh, elaborating the gospel. And that is that we don't yet enjoy its fullness. We live in a fallen world, a world of suffering. All of us suffer in some way or other. You don't have to live that long before you suffer estrangement, alienation, failure, unemployment, grief, sickness, bereavement, broken relationships, and so on. And of course, a world that suffers more largely as well. And if you were to give, be given the choice, what would you choose between a life without suffering or a life with suffering, but also with the sure promise of future glory? Our world would choose the former. Instant gratification. We live in a world where the absence of pain is one of our gods and goals. But Paul says no. It's a false god. The suffering we face because we live in a fallen world, and he's not thinking here specifically of the suffering that Christians face from persecution, though that could be added as a layer. He said, what is better is a world where there is suffering, but the promise of future glory is so good and so certain that it far outweighs the suffering we face now. There's no comparison between the two. Paul has been arguing for the last seven chapters about this glorious gospel that we are and anybody is or can be justified or accepted by God, acquitted for our sins, forgiven for our sins through the atoning death of Jesus. In particular, the end of Romans 3 brings that argument to its climax. And therefore, because we are justified by God, as Paul elaborated into chapters 4 and 5, we have peace with God. And therefore, as he says at the beginning of this chapter, there's no condemnation. No condemnation from God for our sins and our failings and our transgressions. And this gospel is for anyone and everyone. Jew first, Gentile also. A common theme through Romans 1, not just to 8, but especially in chapters 9 and 11. This is a gospel whatever your religious or racial or linguistic background is. It's a glorious gospel for anyone and everyone that our salvation is utterly by grace, not earned by us, not merited by us, and therefore we are not condemned by God. Our sin was condemned on the cross of Christ, and now we are free to set our minds on the Spirit of God. Now this emphasis in this first part of Romans 8 
to set our minds on the things of the Spirit is not sort of the job that we must do to be saved, but rather because our sin's been dealt with by Jesus on the cross, because we face no condemnation, and because indeed God's Spirit has been poured into our hearts, it's not for us to strive and strain to sort of find the Spirit, grasp the Spirit, and set our minds on the Spirit as though that is the achievement that will warrant our salvation, not at all. But God's done it all for us. That's grace. And he's given us his spirit. That's grace. And so Paul says here in verse 5 and 6, for example, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. We have life. We're not subjected to death because of our sin. We're freed from our sin. It's been condemned on the cross of Christ. And as Jesus died and was buried but rose again to life, he's the first fruits. And we follow him if we trust in him. And so Paul says in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised you from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus suffered, died, but rose to life forever. And so too, that's the pattern for us. Yes, we will suffer, not as Christ did, but we will suffer in a fallen world. But death holds no sting for us. Life in Christ reigns. So we have life. We're delivered from this body of death. That was Paul's lament in chapter 7. But not just that. We have life through the Spirit, through the gospel of Jesus. We have peace with God through that gospel of Jesus as well. But even more, we are adopted into God's family. We can call God our Father because of the Spirit within us. So Paul goes on in the next paragraph to say, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, it's not just that we have peace with God, a God who's remote, the God over everything. I mean, that's a great thing. But even greater still is that this same God, the Lord of all creation, we can call him our father. We've been adopted into his family. We're, co, we're, we're siblings, if you like, with Jesus, God's only begotten son. And therefore, we are heirs. Therefore, we inherit. Now, many of you will have inherited something in your life, whether that's from your grandparents or your parents or, or somebody else. I inherited a little bit of money from one grandfather when he died. That's uh, the sum total of my inheritance so far in my life. And uh, others of you will have inherited estates or shares in housing and whatever it might be, shared often with siblings and others. And so what, what do we inherit? I mean, God's not going to die. But the idea of an inheritance is, that the, is the, the heavenly kingdom, basically, that Jesus is king of. And we will reign with him, a theme that, 
that is there from the early first chapter of the Bible, basically, to have dominion. And we will reign with Christ for eternity, as the end of the book of Revelation also talks about. That is, we are inheritors with Christ of the heavenly kingdom of God. We don't yet have that in its fullness. We belong in that kingdom. We're citizens of that kingdom. But we don't yet enjoy it in its perfection and fullness. We still live in this world, in this fallen, groaning and indeed suffering world. And here's the sting of what Paul says. Having spoken about the spirit bearing witness with us that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And here's the sting. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, the gospel of Jesus doesn't promise us an instant release from the sufferings of this world immediately. It's not that we come to faith and, oh, we're taken up into heaven straight away. Not at all. We still live in this world, though we belong in the heavenly kingdom. And therefore we will suffer. We'll suffer because this is a suffering world. That's the main theme of suffering here, not so much the suffering of persecution, though that's part and parcel of it for Christians as well. And what Paul's saying is that just as Jesus suffered and was glorified in his resurrection and ascension, so too that's the pattern for us. We're not yet there in one sense because we're still here on earth. But we will be glorified with him provided we suffer with him here and now. So being a Christian doesn't lift us immediately out of the sufferings of our world. The gospel victory doesn't take away the sufferings of belonging in this fallen world. And you and I know, maybe even more in the last couple of years, that we live in a fallen, suffering, indeed, groaning world. We've groaned through COVID. We're groaning because of the war in the Ukraine. We're groaning because of grief or sadness. All these different things. It's a groaning world. Three times Paul uses the language of groaning in the next verses, basically. You see, this fallen groaning world has been the case since the first sin of the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden. It's subjected to futility and frustration and failings and therefore groaning. There's a lot of groaning. Paul goes on to speak of creation groaning. He says, firstly, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's his basic premise for the rest of the chapter. For the creation waits with eager longing. And the idea of waiting with eager longing here, it's a little little bit like when you go to the airport, if you remember those days pre-COVID when people would visit us, and you're, you're looking at those doors that slide open, waiting for your loved one to come out from an international arrival. And when the door opens, you stand on tiptoes looking through, saying, can I see, you know, auntie or mum or dad or whoever? The idea here is that creation is, is almost like standing on tiptoes looking forward to the glory that is to come. And, and, and notice how Paul puts it oddly in one sense, The glory, the eager longing is for the revealing of the sons of God. You and I are the children of God already. But on that final day, when this suffering world 
disappears or, or at least passes away, the perfection of the kingdom of God will reveal the children of God. And that's what we're looking forward to, that final day. And so he says in verse 22, the whole creation's been groaning together, longing for that day. A bit like when your stomach groans looking forward to a meal or something like that. It's as if it's in the pains of childbirth. You know, sometimes women say how painful childbirth is. And I wonder to myself, well, why would you have more than one child if it's that painful? Of course, the answer to that is that the joy of children outweighs the pain of childbirth. The pain of childbirth is relatively fleeting. And the joy of children awaits. And Paul here, and in various parts of the Bible, in fact, uses this illustration. That is, the sufferings we have now are not worth comparing to the joy that is to come. A certain joy of the fullness of the kingdom of heaven, basically. And so creation groans, and, and Christians groan as well. Because the next verse he goes on to say, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, that is Christians who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. We are children now. We call God our Father now, but we're waiting for the sort of public demonstration of that adoption on the final day of Jesus' return. And we groan inwardly. We sometimes think that the gift of God's Spirit is something that just makes us happy and joyful and excited. But actually, one of the things that the Spirit gives us is, a, is, in one sense, a deeper dissatisfaction with this world. That is, that we salivate for the world to come. That is, the gift of God's Spirit in us is a bit like when you begin to smell the smells of somebody, whoever cooks in your household, cooking dinner for you. And you think, oh, wow, roast lamb or curry or whatever it is. And, and your mouth waters and your stomach rumbles. And you think, oh, I'm looking forward to dinner. And that's what the Spirit is doing in us. The Spirit is making us long for heaven, long for the kingdom of heaven even more. In one sense, the Spirit of God is making us less satisfied with this world and longing for the satisfaction of the world to come. That is, Christians groan. Creation groans, Christians groan. The Spirit himself groans in verse 26. He groans as he intercedes for us bringing us or expressing our relationship with God the Father. You see, we don't yet have the fullness of the kingdom. We don't yet have freedom from suffering. But this future glory is certain and it's guaranteed for us. And that's Paul's point in the final part of this chapter. He says in verse 28, a famous verse, but famously misunderstood. The uh, all things work for good for those who love God. Now, that's not Australian theology that says she'll be right, mate. Don't worry. That's not what Paul's speaking about here when he says all things work for, for good. It's not as though, the, oh, the bad times, they'll, they'll go. Tomorrow it'll be a good day. She'll be right, mate. That's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul is saying is that the suffering of this world, the evil and the struggles that we have, is all for our good, and God will bring good out of that. And he doesn't mean good that is just the ease of pain and, yep, things are okay today. But let's see what he says here about the good. Because he follows this verse with uh, five 
points of a chain, an unbreakable chain, five links, if you like, of a chain that cannot be broken. The first link of the chain is that God foreknows us. Not that he knows in advance what we're going to be like, but rather that he says, I make a relationship with you before you're even aware of it, before the foundation of the world, in fact. And God, who's foreknown us, predestines us. Remember years ago when I was a teenager, for some reason in the city I don't recall, running down the ramp at Flinders Street Station to get on my train because I could hear the announcer going, the Waverley Line train, now I thought, oh, Glen Waverley Line train, I better get on that, that was my train. Running down, jumping in the train, the doors closed and off we go in the wrong direction. Think what? And the announcer hadn't said Glen Waverley Line train, it said Gowrie Line train. Well, I don't even know where Gowrie is. Well, I had to get off at the next stop, Spencer Street, I suppose, and then change trains to go back the way that I thought I should be going. The train was predestined. The train had its destination on it. I didn't read it, couldn't really hear what the, the, the announcer was saying, and jumped on the wrong train, heading the wrong direction. But for us to be predestined is God to say, I've established a relationship with you and your destiny is glory in my heavenly kingdom. And that's all established before we're ever aware of it. And then the third link in the chain is that God calls us. Oh, but I need to say something more about what is our destiny. And this is the point. Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see, our destiny is not to sort of strum our harps and float around in clouds in heaven, having a grand old time and ordering drinks when we want them. Our destiny is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That is, to be like him morally, to be holy, to be perfect like Jesus. And that's why the suffering of this world is part and parcel of the bringing about the good. It's not that it's bad and one day it'll be gone and tomorrow is going to be nice, but rather the sufferings of this fallen world are to make us more like Jesus to help conform us more into his image. That the sufferings of our world are sort of rubbing off our, wrong, our rough edges and shaping us, conforming us more into his image. That's the good that God wants from us. That's the good that is our destiny. To be like Jesus. After all, we're siblings of him. We're adopted into the same family by grace. And so God's foreknown us, predestined us. Now he's called us in our life. He's brought us into the fellowship of his church. And then fourthly in this chain, unbreakable chain, is that he's justified us. Paul argued that at length back in Romans 1, 2, and 3 and the application of it in the chapters that followed leading up to this. That is, we're accepted by the atoning death of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. We're acquitted by God. We have peace with God and access to God our Father. We're justified. And then what is the last link of the chain? Paul says those whom he, he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's past tense, which is a bit surprising, I think. He's speaking about our future glory, the final destination, if you like. Earlier in Romans 3, we have fallen short of the glory of God, but now by God's grace, we will one day be glorified. He uses the past tense to show that this chain of five links is unbreakable. 
that what started will certainly reach its destination. You see, before history, you and I are bound for glory in Christ. We've been placed on this glory train before creation. And that glory train that you and I are on will not fail to reach its destination. No evil will derail it. No sin will stop it. No suffering will delay it. No lack of prayer will slow it down. In fact, nothing in all of creation can stop the glory train reaching its destination. Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions to underscore this. So he says in verse 31, what can we say about this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is no one, ultimately. That is, no one can be against us to take us off this train or stop this train reaching its glory. In verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? As though a ticket inspector will get on this glory train and say, you haven't got the right ticket, off. No, no one can bring such a charge against God's elect. In verse 34, who is to condemn? Well, lots of people may seek to condemn, but in God's court, no condemnation is is valid against us. That's how the chapter began. And so we've got a right to be on this glory train. We will not be taken off it. And then the fourth rhetorical question, the climax of these questions, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That is, who will separate us from this glory train in effect? Shall tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Danger? No. No sword can. That is, nothing can separate us from this glory train. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is, you and I have been foreknown, predestined, called and justified. We're on a glory train bound for the heavenly kingdom and the revelation of the children of God. A glory that far outweighs any suffering in this world. There's no comparison between the two. And that train, and us on that train, can never and will never be separated. Nothing could stop it, and nothing can get us off it. It's an unbreakable five-point chain. And yes, the suffering of this world is part and parcel of our life. We can't escape it, but it's for our good to conform us into the image of Jesus the Son because the destination of this train is the perfection of God's kingdom where you and I will be perfected in the image of Jesus, holy and perfect. And nothing can separate us. This is not just wishful thinking. This is not sort of an idle hope that, oh, I hope one day this is going to happen. It's certain. And because it's glorious and because it's certain, then all the sufferings of our world fade away in significance in comparison. If it were not glorious or, and or, if it were not certain, then we might as well live for today. But because it's glorious and certain, there's no comparison. And therefore we persevere. Therefore we hang on in hope, even though the church heater hasn't worked, and even though our world is full of COVID, and even though there's war, and even though there's grief and bereavement and sadness and unemployment and all the economic problems and woes of our world and everything else in our world, we keep going. Because the future glory is worth it. 
This is a glorious gospel, an astonishingly wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no better message. There is no better, better faith ever in history. You cannot make up something better than this. And that's why we follow Jesus. Regardless of what happens today, tomorrow and the next. It's why following Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our destination is secure for eternity because of Jesus. Thank you that nothing, nothing at all can separate us from your love for us in him. So Father, help us to keep calling you our Father. Help us no longer to fall back into fear and help us to have absolute confidence in our ultimate destiny with you forever and with Jesus. Amen.